0: The first time she says she got paid for a piece of writing was in 1988 when she was 12 years old and she wrote a poem, Tragedy of Child Abuse. She's gone on to write 10 more books including Rule of Law with Glynis Breitenbach. Farm Killings in South Africa, Femicide in South Africa, and her latest offering is Domestic Terror, Intimate Partner Violence in South Africa. Our guest on this episode of the podcast is Dr. Nehama Brody. My name is Nongdebo Vugile Mackenzie. Welcome to the podcast. On this episode of the podcast, we're in conversation with Dr. Nihama Brody. She is the author, or let me say her latest offering is Domestic Terror, Intimate Partner Violence in South Africa. Nehama, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. So at the very beginning of your book, um, just after you talk about um, the case studies or, or, or just after you tabulate the, the case studies, you talk about how this isn't... The first time, you've obviously you've got other publications, but from quite an early age, if I can put it that way, you've been interested and you've found yourself writing about abuse. And your first recollection is, of course, writing about child abuse. Can you sort of think back as to why why has this been a subject area that you've been repeatedly coming back to?
1: I was abused when I was a child, and that's what I wrote about. Um, but I think many people experienced some form of uh, physical or other abuse as children, and that often provides a framework for how we understand the world around us, particularly um, growing up, you know, at, at a point in time before there were more public or broader discussions around safety of children, uh, safety of families, safety of women. We didn't always have a language for it and we didn't necessarily learn about that information by reading about it. And what I write in the introduction of the book is that many many years later when I started working as a journalist. Um, it was at Marie Claire magazine when it first launched in the 1990s in South Africa. It was really uh, working as a sort of a junior magazine intern mm-hmm. that I first started coming across more stories that uh, not my own stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't writing yet when I started. I was a little intern. I had to run around and type and do errands. Um, it was a while before I was allowed to write more serious stories, but I was very aware that the, the journalists working in that magazine, and subsequently I saw in you know many other women's magazines, mm-hmm. there were a lot of particularly women journalists in South Africa um, doing an important job covering issues around the abuse of women. Um, and so I think the point that I was trying to make in my opening sort of introduction of the book was, as a child, I only really understood violence through the lens of being a child. Mm -hmm. And that's logical and that's normal. As a kid, you can't really understand what happens, what are the dynamics between adults. And as I became a sort of a late teenager, when I finished school, started going to university, um, even before I started working in magazines, as we start as women, as we start having experiences with male partners in particular, um, we start to understand that there's a whole language around abuse that maybe we weren't aware of, and so we have to shift that framework of mm-hmm. sort of understanding what types of violence happen between men and women. Also, how as kids, and I think uh, you know, even as adult women, um, the media had had not prepared us very well because mostly the media. In my experience growing up, tended to focus on the idea that the threat to you was a stranger. Mm-hmm. It was somebody you didn't know. It was kind of the, you know, the person offering you sweeties from a car or the stranger in a dark alleyway. And what our research shows consistently for years is that the biggest threat to women in particular, is the
0: person in their own home. I found it interesting. You say on page 29, again, men don't kill women because there are laws that say they can do so. We need to see this and say this the right way around. There are laws that let men kill women because men wrote laws to legitimize those practices. And I I looked when you say this in the book, I looked around at the older women around me and you talk about you know legislation that basically treated women as property but also really curtailed a lot of their rights in terms of what they could own in terms of their movement so many aspects of what we take for granted which i didn't realize you know the the short time span that this has all happened and i looked at my mother i thought of my grandmother and i thought oh my goodness these are the women that have lived through these changes and uh, lived through these limitations and I found it interesting because certainly as a, as a lay person, I'm not a specialist in law. I'm not a specialist in, um, domestic violence or anything like that. But to actually read it sort of articulated like that, that men wrote the laws that enable this, it, it left me with the impression that this runs much deeper than just, you know, people who are violent, but that actually create the systems that enable their violence to live and flourish and also to not really have a sort of effective accountability? This is kind of what we mean when we talk
1: about violence and patriarchy as being systemic. And I know that there are a lot of people who think that if we talk about the patriarchy, maybe we're being a little bit woke, um... And I'm sort of confused as to how all of these terms became insults in a really weird way. But when we look at histories of modern human societies going back thousands of years... From the very kind of earliest written records that we have, we, we notice very clearly that in most of these societies, certain levels of violence against women were always allowed. And, um, and they were written into the very first laws that we, we have kind of uh, track of. Mm-hmm. And these have been around for thousands of years. And, when you talk about your mother, your grandmother, it's only recently, like literally in the last two generations, mm. that these laws have started to kind of properly come more undone. And uh, it, it, you cannot change thousands of years of societal practices mm. In, you know, 50 years of changing laws, it's going to take a lot longer. So when people say, how do we fix this? Um, how do we stop sort of the inherent violence of men towards women? It's not just as simple as changing a law in the 1990s and then saying, well, everyone's equal now. It should all be fine. Mm. Because... Our entire, everything about our society, our financial systems, our legal systems, our systems of marriage, um, our systems of family and who gets to be called a parent and what rights parents mm-hmm. have are all premised on those same pretty patriarchal, very misogynistic legal systems that have been around for thousands of years. So undoing those processes and practices is a really complex matter and I'm not really sure how long it's going to take. Mm-hmm. Um But as you say, this kind of this uh, notion of legitimized violence against women is pretty entrenched in how people assume they're allowed to behave. And I think it's it's carried over very much to present generations. Um, And the only reason why we don't understand it in the same way in previous generations is people didn't have a language to talk about it Mm -hmm. or it wasn't always a crime. So things that we understand today very clearly as violence or as criminal... um, 20, 30 years ago, maybe, well, 30 plus years ago, weren't necessarily crimes. Um, you know, very older, an older example, slavery wasn't a crime mm. in the early 1800s in South Africa. And today we quite clearly understand that you cannot own a person. Um, but, you know, much more recently than that, it wasn't considered a, a legal thing that a husband couldn't rape his wife. Mm. There was no uh, legal framework for a husband to be charged with rape. Um, he could only be charged with assault if he uh, hurt his wife mm-hmm. in the course of raping her. And the things that had to be done in order for our laws to change, just to acknowledge that rape can take place within a marriage, that husbands aren't mm-hmm. entitled to sex from their wife, um, that sex without consent is rape. Mm-hmm. Um All of these things, again, are are surprisingly recent. It's it's quite staggering. And when we imagine what must that have done in terms of how our moms and our grands and our great-grands, how they were able to interact with the world and the freedoms that they had and didn't have. You know, when you
0: talk about... How all these were articulated. You know, there's a conversation that keeps on coming up that this generation are in parenthesis failing to make marriages last. And when you articulate in the book, first of all, what you just mentioned now about who could be a parent, it gave me a completely new meaning to I stayed for the children because fathers essentially owned their children so if you left as the woman because you were abused or whatever you literally lost your children but also where would you live because you couldn't own property but also you were property so all of those things reading about that in this book domestic terror intimate partner violence in south africa gave a whole different perspective to me about what all those things mean because we take it so for granted oh our our Fathers were different or our mothers were different, but the entire structure or rather, yeah, societal structures, legal frameworks supported a certain way of being and a certain way of life that enabled what we only saw as good oh marriages lasted but if you look at it and if you look if you look deeper as you did in the book it actually showed you know how that was as I was saying enabled but what I also found quite interesting in the book and interesting but scary because when we read or when we hear or when the police statistics are released or the crime statistics are released you know they'll say attempted murder They'll say murder, um, assault, robbery, all of that. But on page ninety six, you say domestic violence featured in ten percent of attempted murders in sample yeah. in a sample of cases in Pumalanga, nine percent in KwaZulu Natal. You know, you, you hear that the person was beaten, the person is abused, the person is a victim of domestic violence. But when it's crystallized as attempted murder, again, it, it gives a completely different perspective, doesn't it?
1: I was surprised reading through police reports, and I mean, I do that a lot. I read through police statistics often. Um, they're not very helpful because they sort of lump all domestic violence together, and that includes all violence that occurs within the home. So that could also include violence between men you know, who live in the same home, um, male family members. It could be violence from a female family member against a male family member. Mm-hmm. But we do know that probably three-quarters or so of domestic violence is violence by a male partner against his female intimate partner. But saps mm-hmm. don't give us a good breakdown there. Um, but let's take a step back and sort of reconnect that with our laws in South Africa. Even in the 1990s, the primary unit that our laws were trying to protect in terms of domestic violence acts was the family unit, mm-hmm. and and this was this kind of major panic in South Africa: is if we're not protecting the family, what, what are we doing? And it works on this very old-fashioned idea that the family is a mom, a dad, and you know, two mm-hmm. or three kids all living under the same roof. But many of us living in South Africa don't live in that kind of a family unit, mm-hmm. and you know, is that a natural family? Unit says who. Uh, You know, Victorian society said who. um, And so there's a constant need for redefining what does it mean to have a family? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, is it is it people who sort of share a roof? Is it people who share responsibilities? But what these laws did was they protected the family first, and they protected the integrity and the safety of the mother or the mom, the wife, the female partner second. And so a lot of the moves over the last decade, few decades in particular, have been about asserting the fact that how is a family keeping a family together more important than a woman's right to be safe? Mm-hmm. And we see this through not just um, acts of murder, you know, where, where a person's been killed, mm-hmm. but there are so many m- crimes that occur before a killing takes place or around that. And when you start to look at the breakdown of all the different SAPS categories of violent crimes, so crimes that are uh, between people, not property crimes, Mm -hmm. you see how many of them are connected to domestic violence, not just attempted murder but um, assault, assault with the intent to cause grievous bodily harm Mm -hmm. even arson and malicious damage to property are extremely strongly connected to to domestic violence Mm -hmm. and from what that tells me looking at that is that there are tens of thousands of women across the country who are Mm -hmm. experiencing small and perhaps escalating acts of violence, acts of control by their male partner, or maybe it's a former partner who's kind of threatening them, destroying their property, burning things, smashing a phone, you know, doing something to damage their property as, as a means to try and control the physical person. And those can escalate over time into more serious physical acts. But it was kind of like there are all these warning signs along the way, and um SAPS doesn't really highlight how yeah. many of them are connected to domestic violence. You
0: know, you you say that, and as we head towards wrapping up our discussion, you talk about that in page on page ninety seven, where you say the survey found that two thirds of cases included physical abuse, a fifth of cases involved. Emotional, verbal, and psychological abuse, and again, it's what you say, you're talking about now that it escalates. It's the boiling frog syndrome. You know, it starts off you know in very subtle ways that build up because a person, someone, might be able to dismiss the smashing of a phone against the wall, you know, and say, "Well, it didn't smash me against the wall." Now, what will you smash next then, or what will the person smash next then? But again, I think one of the things that maybe is not um, spoken about enough um, in my view is the abuse of or the killing of ex-partners. I read about yeah. something called post separation abuse that for me was one of the most interesting things I, I read because it, it looked at this wheel of different kinds of abuses that people inflict upon each other when they are in separation or when they are going for divorce or when they are divorced and it, it was a myriad of things financial abuse emotional abuse legal abuse just abusing the legal system to get back at somebody now we, we look at it and it paints a very bleak Picture. But with work that is being done by centers like the Sarki Batman Center in Cape Town and all the different, you know, advocates of, you know, let's do something about domestic abuse in South Africa, is there light at the end of the tunnel? Are there shifts subtle or not?
1: We're seeing very good shifts in terms of the law and our understanding of the problem. What we're not seeing is there's, there's no translation into effective. Policy and when I say effective, um, I was having this discussion a few weeks ago where it is much easier now and it's affordable to get a protection order, and that's really important that it's mm-hmm. uh, it's accessible to more people. But more accessible protection orders has not resulted in a decrease in violence and and uh, murder mm-hmm. of uh, female part females women by their you know male intimate partners, and so th- there's some gap somewhere between the policies that are in place and the effectiveness. And I think that um, some of the major gaps there is a a failure of policing. Mm -hmm. Um, We we do need to ask what are our police services doing because first of all, they're not investigating the crimes after the fact very well. We know from femicide studies that a number of dockets get lost, that the number of Mm -hmm. convictions is quite small. Um, But to be honest, we don't only want to be investigating cases after a woman's dead. We -hmm. want policing to be proactive and to stop the the violence happening before the woman is killed. So that's a real problem. Um, You know, once it gets to our courts, if if the docket and the investigation is good enough, the convictions might be easier. The courts also kind of, sometimes protection orders can take months to gain. They can still be difficult for women to access. There are a number of obstacles for people in accessing assistance through the courts, which would be helpful. as communities, I still think that we've we've internalized this notion that the family must come first mm-hmm. and so when women speak out against a partner, um, there's often defense of that man. Oh, but he's such a wonderful brother. He's such a wonderful yes. son. I cannot tell you yes. how many murder cases I have read where a man killed his partner after years of abuse mm-hmm. and the mom and sister of that man will stand there outside of, outside of court and tell you what a lovely boy he was. And um, so, there's some sort of level of disconnect in terms of our failure to believe women when they ask for help, um, which really stops them from getting the help that they need. So there are a number of failures, you know, as a society, um, our policing system very definitely needs to be a lot more proactive and a lot more sensitive to what is going on. Um, Proactive policing would be really, really helpful, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so on paper, things are are in place in practice not so much
0: and what scares me um, as you say that is yes the shifts are there from a policy perspective um and as you say more effective and more proactive policing is needed but the shifts are not happening in my view from reading the book In the home where this is happening Because it's intimate partner violence It's domestic violence And if you're going to tell the family And it's kept hush hush Or people are defended Because as you say They are such a wonderful brother Who your brother is and who your sister is is completely different to who they are when they're in, in, in an intimate situation. That's a completely different playing field and a completely different set of dot 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 that comes into play there that you're not exposed to by them being, by them being your relative. And it's, it's scary um, when you read the book, but it's scary when you look at when you start off the book, where you say, this has always happened. And you trace the cases back from 1911 in the book. One of the cases that, sh- that shook me the most was Yvonne's case, the one who was murdered in maintenance court. That just shook me to the core because you wouldn't think this would happen in, in a magistrate's court, you know? And when you yeah. say, this has always happened and it's still happening and you, you look as a i was saying i was looking at my mother and i was thinking about my grandmother i mean they didn't experience that but i was thinking that these changes that you speak of are in their lifetime and if this is where we are in my lifetime what happens in my daughter's lifetime and i hope with the work that you have done and this you know goes to some extent because maybe you know a person who reads this will get a shift and be like hey but my my sister-in-law has told me this or so and so has told me this maybe the person that I think I know so well as a man is a completely different person and maybe I should just ask a little bit more maybe as a mother I should you know listen a little bit closer observe a little bit closer maybe as somebody's ex-wife I need to you know you not say oh he's just you know that's just how he is and that's just how he's always been maybe you know I should snip this in the bud before it goes further.
1: I think it is really important I, I do hope the book is read and shared particularly by women. I think that men who are abusing and controlling their partners are not going to change from reading a book um, but for women it's very very important that they're able to read this and hopefully also start to believe themselves. Something that I've said in this book and my my kind of two books ago, I did a book on femicide in South Africa, is when a woman, I've said, when a woman asks for help, we really should believe her, we should listen to her. And I think that's that's an important starting off point. But women should also believe themselves because one of the strategies of intimate partner violence is often around making women stop believing in themselves. It, you know, to deliberately undermine their confidence Mm -hmm. and their ability to trust their own thought process. Mm -hmm. So I want women to stop gaslighting themselves. Um, and to actually say, yes, it really was that bad. It could have, you know, it could be bad, but more than that is I add in this book is when a man says, he's going to hurt a woman, we should also believe him. It's, it's never a joke. So we need to take this a lot more seriously and, um, that's why I hope it kind of gets circulated so that people also start to understand that abuse and control isn't always like some super obvious textbook case where there's a woman with a black eye. Um, Many of the the signs are hidden under clothing or the abuse isn't physical. Um, Acts of control and Mm -hmm. coercion can take place in so many different ways and it's really, really hard to see them because abusers are really good at this. Mm -hmm. One of the strange things, you know, documenting a hundred years and more of different types of domestic abuse, is how consistent the abusive strategies are Mm -hmm. between generations, centuries, between geographical locations, between different classes, different races. It's like the abusers have all been given a manual Mm -hmm. and they all get to read it because they follow the same structure and the same patterns. So, you know, if women are aware that there are patterns, maybe they can actually say, right, I actually do need help. Um, I'm not sure how to get it yet, but I'll, you know, I'll work that out later. But this is actually bad, and that's really what we want. Is we obviously we want to try and disrupt this process and get help before a woman is badly injured and definitely before she's killed, because there is no justice once somebody's dead.
0: Nahama, thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for all your work before this and for this work—domestic terror, intimate partner violence—in South Africa. Thank you so much. Thank you, and thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Remember, you can like, rate and share this podcast episode from the channel you're listening on.